Welcome to Reading Marx's Grinrisse with David Harvey. This course was recorded at the People's Forum in New York City in 2020. David Harvey is a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for the Penguin Classics edition. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash This episode is Class 1, Introduction, pages 83 through 111. Now, as you've probably already discovered, if you didn't already know, uh, the Grundrisse is a very complicated kind of text. Uh, it's about a set of notes that Marx was writing to himself uh, at a rather frantic time when it looked like the economy uh, was collapsing in 1857-58 and Marx is writing as he set himself like a madman into the middle of the night uh, trying to figure out a way to understand uh, what is going on uh, theoretically. So it's uh, uh, it's, it's a particular kind of uh, text. And, and Marx has a different set of ways of writing. There are some of, some, some of his writings that were prepared for publication, such as uh, Volume 1 of Capital. Uh, and there he's very concerned to try to come up with a language which he thinks his audience will understand. Uh, there are uh, other forms of writing where he's really just writing uh, for himself. You know, using his own concepts and his own thinking, and uh, and and he's really talking to him to himself, uh, and that is the form that the Grundrisse takes. There's an intermediate uh, uh, way of writing, which is, if you like, a systematic discovery uh, form of writing, where Marx starts off and works through very carefully uh, the idea, the sort of uh, Thing you will find in the manuscripts out of which uh, Engels constructed uh, volume three of Capital. Uh, it's not as free flowing as uh, the Grundrisse and as open as the Grundrisse, and it's more sort of targeted, and that Marx is there kind of trying to discover what the foundational relations are. But the Grundrisse is this uh, mix of. Uh, 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 of thinking and Marx uh, talking to himself, so we have to try and understand his language. He's not always consistent with himself. He frequently changes uh, conceptual apparatuses in the middle. He switches it around. He's often not sure exactly what uh, where, where, where he's going. And, and so it has a, a, a somewhat messy character to it. But at the same time as it's messy, it's also open. In, 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 I think, some pretty astonishing ways. Now, there are various ways uh, you could uh, imagine setting about reading this. You could try to read it uh, very closely, systematically, um, and uh, that would take you rather a long time in which you would sort of wonder about everything on every page. Uh, very, very deep uh, kind, of, kind of reading. There are other readings which uh, try to uh, take a particular angle on Marx's thinking. For instance, uh, philosophers would read it uh, looking for the sort of way in which Marx is uh, uh, appropriating Hegel or Spinoza and, and the like. 
And I, then uh, there are uh, other arguments going on. Uh, for instance, uh, you'll find he's frequently in argument with Proudhon. And uh, well, to be honest, I often find the Proudhon discussion a little bit uh, tedious, and Marx is just being rude about Proudhon and, and, uh, and generally trying to uh, sort of uh, dismiss uh, much of what he is, what Proudhon is, is talking about. So what, what I want to do, however, is to sort of do an overview reading, which is uh, to sort of try to get through the whole text in uh, you know, 12 weeks, and there's about nearly 900 pages of it. Uh, and the idea is uh, to sort of pick out those uh, areas in the Grundrisse where Marx is really engaging uh, with fantastic imagination and thoroughness uh, into a whole uh, series of uh, very important topics. Uh, and then in between there are these passages where Marx is just sort of playing around with numbers and trying to make this work with that, uh, where, which are not uh, very informative. Uh, and what I want to do is, is, is to go across the whole text so that you know where things are. And with a bit of luck, uh, you may end up with an annotated version of the, of the text where if you want, you know, if you want to go back to it, you can see, okay, this is where he deals with this, or this is where he deals with that. Um, and I like to do this overview because uh, until you get to the last 100 pages or so, uh, there is a definite unfolding of the text. I mean, Marx is moving across uh, a whole set of uh, questions. Uh, and there's a systematic uh, underpinning uh, to, to, where, to where he's going. Uh, when you get to about the last hundred pages, however, um, they're essentially uh, notes uh, and copies of various texts that he's thinking of uh, analyzing. He didn't have a photocopying machine, so he sat in the British <laughs> Museum and and took down all of the, uh, copied out uh, loads of stuff. And, and with that, you don't know exactly what he would have done with it. There are the raw materials for further investigations, but there's sometimes a hint of what he's thinking about it. But a lot of the time, it's just sort of copying out uh, uh, details. So what I want to do then is to do this overview, start from the beginning, take large chunks of text. Some weeks I've assigned uh, well over 100 pages to read. Uh, you'll soon find that when I do that, it's largely because there are whole chunks of it that are really not that interesting and you can skim read some of it and try and find the uh, uh, meaty bits. Uh, and this is particularly true in the, in the first part where Marx is talking about money and he does all kinds of things. He's mainly arguing with the uh, Proudhonists and uh, that, of course, uh, is drawing him away from a very coherent uh, 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 approach to the money question. So one, some weeks I'm giving you large chunks of text to look at so that uh, you look at it and try to figure out what are the interesting things and what, what the theme is in the 100 pages and, and, and what, what 
ideas come out of it. So that's uh, going to be the, the, the style, if you like. And uh, it's largely going to be uh, made up of me talking way through text uh, and you following along. Um, I hope that uh, if there are uh, elements which were coming across in the text and things that I'm saying which you're not following, then you just have to put your hand up and we'll get the microphone and we'll have a little bit of discussion. Uh, but most of the discussion I'd like to leave for some towards uh, uh, the end. Uh, and then we can talk through uh, what some of the uh, ideas are and how important these ideas uh, are. Now, the email that was sent out suggested that you read uh, the first uh, uh, part, uh, the introduction, uh, and uh, I'm going to just uh, kick straight in and start talking about what the introduction is doing. And really, there are, there are four uh, parts to this uh, introduction. Uh, the first uh, couple of pages uh, is about individual in, independent individuals. Uh, and he here takes on uh, the question of uh, how do we understand the individual and individualism. Uh, and Marx has a very specific uh, uh, approach to this and a, and a very critical approach uh, of liberal theory. Uh, this is encapsulated by him starting off and saying that uh, he's going to uh, criticize the, what he calls the unimaginative conceits of the 18th century Robinsonades. Um, now, in, in Capital, those of you who are familiar with that text, will know that he takes on the Robinson Crusoe uh, myth uh, and the Robinson Crusoe story. Uh, upon which uh, many political economists of the 17th and 18th century uh, actually rested uh, their uh, economic uh, theory. Uh, just uh, for your interest, uh, if you feel like reading novels, um, then uh, actually reading Robinson Crusoe is, is 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 interesting. It's the kind of thing that uh, I read as a kid, and every you know we all in Britain we all read that sort of thing. Um, and and as Marx says in Capital, it's astonishing. There's Robinson on the island wondering what to do, and he's he recovers uh, ink and a pen and a ledger, and he sits down and he starts doing double entry bookkeeping. And this is therefore presented as a natural way in which somebody in an isolated situation would actually understand the world. And of course, Marx is laughing about it and sort of saying, you know, actually, uh, he's really understanding the world because he's brought with him in the shipwreck the whole imagination uh, of, a, of a 17th or 18th century bookkeeper. Uh, and But the point about this is that 18th century thinking about the individual was to naturalize the individual. And with Rousseau, you have this idea that there is the noble savage, uh, and the noble savage gets together with other noble savages, and they have a contract, and they, they make a society. 
So, so the individual uh, is seen as somehow rather the natural unit uh, upon which uh, political theory should be constructed. Uh, Marx actually turns this the other way around and says, well, the natural unit was not the individual, it was the, the group, the band, the tribe, or whatever. And it took a certain kind of society to create a situation in which the individual could start to act as an entrepreneur, as an individual. And the individualism, therefore, is a product of a creation of a certain kind of society. Now, this is politically very important. Uh, because what we find uh, is that the, the kind of the right wing political theory is going to sit and say, okay, uh, we have to protect uh, individual liberty. Uh, and uh, of course, Marx is seen as one of the chief uh, uh, offenders against individual liberty because he's supposed to be in favor of collective action. Uh, Marx's point, however, is that no, he's very much in favor of the individual, but uh, you can't get that kind of individual uh, and individualism without collective action. So in a sense, it turns the whole kind of liberal theory upside down and says it's not that the individual precedes society. Uh, the individual arises out of the construction of kind of society which makes individualism possible. And I think it's important politically uh, to be able to demonstrate that, that Marx has an actu actual interest in individual liberty and freedom, and that the high point uh, of, of his politics is precisely the creation of a world in which there's a great deal of individual liberty and freedom. It's not about curtailing it, it's about saying we need uh, to create collective possibility. Uh, so that individual liberty and freedom can be available uh, to all. And this is a, the theme that is actually opened up here right at the beginning. Uh, as he says at the bottom of the first page, uh, that uh, we have to look at the existence of the individual not as a historic result, but as history's... Uh, well, the, the Robinson Aids so on, think of it, not as a historic result, but as history's point of departure. <coughs> as a natural individual appropriate to their notion of human nature, not arising historically, but posited by nature. So it's seen, it's, it's naturalizing individualism and viewing it as, uh, if you like, a species being, a species essence, uh, that, that uh, becomes critical. Um, um, so, and, and he says on page 84, only in the 18th century in civil society, do the various forms of social connectedness confront the individual as a mere means towards his private purposes, as external necessity. But the epoch which produces this standpoint, that of the isolated individual, is also precisely that of the hitherto most developed social, from this standpoint, general relations. The human being is in the most literal sense a political animal, not merely a gregarious animal, but an animal which can individuate itself only in the midst of society. So the, the individuation that creates a situation in which individual entrepreneurialism becomes possible is a social product and a historical product. It's not a natural order at all. And uh, as Marx cheerfully says, uh, there's a lot of twaddle uh, about all this in, in political theory and we have to uh, get it the right way around. But I think you can see the political importance of this and 
what I would like to do is to ask you, when you're reading through the Grundrisse, to watch out for those times where Marx comes back to this theme of what is it that, that, that founds the possibility of the individual and individualism, and how is that sociality constructed that allows for the production of the individual and so on. So that's really just the first couple of pages, which, which is, if you like, a, a, an item in itself. And this then leads him into a general discussion about uh, production uh, and the like. Um, and he starts off on 85 by saying, whenever we speak of production, what is meant is always production at a definite stage of social development, production by social individuals. And he then kind of says, you know, but all societies engage in some form of production. And we therefore have to look very carefully at uh, what all of those different societies have in common. So he kind of says, uh, modern bourgeois production, and that is indeed our particular theme, is a specific kind of production which can be differentiated from other forms of society where production means something rather different, but there are certain commonalities. And he looks at these commonalities by setting up this idea of production in general. Uh, but the production in general, he said, is an abstraction, but a rational abstraction, insofar as it really brings out and fixes the common element and thus saves us repetition. And so there are commonalities in production from one historical situation to another. Uh, so the way he sets this up then is to say, well, let's think about production in general, which is production across all different forms of society. Uh, this then leads him to say on page 86, if there is no production in general, then there is also no general production. Production is always a particular branch of production, agriculture, cattle raising, manufactures, etc., or it is a totality. Now, this term totality is, I think, terribly important. And if, in reading the Grundrisse, you, you have to recognize that Marx is always thinking in terms of the totality. And that at particular moments, he's looking at certain parts of the totality, but the totality becomes significant. So he introduces it then on page uh, 86. Uh, he talks about it round down the page uh, that uh, production is uh, not only a particular production, it is always a certain social body, a social subject, which is active in greater or sparser totality of branches of production. Uh, and again, production in general, particular branches of production, totality of production. And then further on, he then kind of says this. Uh, the general part consists or is alleged to consist of conditions without which production is not possible. I, in fact, to indicate nothing more than the essential moments of all production. Two, two words here. Production as a totality and moments in production. Now, the easiest way I think I can deal with that is to, is to use the little diagram which I've, you've all got hold of, which is, which, which is, which is this diagram. 
uh, beautifully laid out, drawn by my good friend Miguel here. Who's, uh, but the, the point here is that Marx sets up the idea of capital as a totality. And what you see here is a set of relations. Uh, if you start at the very bottom of the argument, you've got money capital, which is money which is being used as capital. And the capitalist takes that money and converts that money into commodities, particularly means of production and labor power. And then the capitalist, as owner of means of production and of labor power, takes that into the production process and produces a new commodity. And then that new commodity is taken into the market and sold for money. Now, what's happened is you've gone from money to commodity to production to commodity to money. But what happens in the moment of production is that the value of all of the commodities which have been bought, the, the labor power and means of production, are reproduced through a labor process at the same time as a surplus value is also produced. That is, a, an extra amount of value is produced. And that extra amount of value is then embodied in the commodities which are produced. And it then goes into the market where the value of the commodity is realized uh, in money form. So you've gone back to the money form, but now it's money plus more money, which is the profit. So the surplus value which is produced in, the, in production then produces uh, the profit. Now, the monetary form entails in, in consumption, that, that conversion, that monetization of, of, that occurs through selling in the market entails consumption behind it. But the money is then distributed. And so you go over to the third area in which some of it goes as wages to the worker. And those wages come back and are spent to buy commodities, which then go back to the reproduction of labor power and bring the laborer back into production. Uh, some of it this goes to industrial profit of the person who is involved in doing all of this. But some of it is also passed to the merchant capitalist who helps with the buying and selling of the, pro of the commodities. Some of it goes to the landlord as rent and some of it goes uh, to the, the banker uh, as interest or, or something of that kind. And some of it is taken as taxes. So you get these different, the different moments of uh, investment, production, which is the first red uh, box. Then there's realization of value or, or the market, which is the, the second. And the third is distribution. Now, these are different moments in this overall process. Right? And Marx is kind of saying the totality of what capital is about is really captured by this sort of thing. Now, there are various ways in which you could draw this. I mean, I'm not saying this is the only way you can do it. In fact, there are many other ways you could, you could do it. But I'm trying to give you the idea of a totality. This is a picture, a mental construction, if you like, of a totality in which capital is circulating through these different moments and then comes back and circulates again. So the different moments and the to and the, and, uh, become significant. And the way Marx sets this up is to kind of say, look, 
we have to understand of production, consumption, uh, distribution, reinvestment, uh, exchange and all the rest of it are moments within the totality. And one of the problems of classical political economy was that it didn't have a good sense of the totality. It would take each one of these elements and treat it as somehow or other autonomous. Whereas Marx says they're not autonomous, they are in relation to each other. You cannot talk about production without talking about uh, consumption and realization. You cannot talk about that without talking about distribution. You have to talk about all of these elements as they flow into each other. So this language of totality and moments is something that you will again find flows throughout a lot of what is going on in the Grundrisse. Marx often doesn't come back and say, okay, I'm talking about the totality. Uh, he sometimes does. But the idea of totality and moments is there. So when you're reading what he's saying, you've got to say, well, where am I in the totality? And, and, and what part of the totality are we looking at here? Am I looking at this moment or am I looking at that moment? And, and, and why is Marx saying that I can't understand that moment without understanding its relationship with all of the other moments? But when you think of this, this totality, then you see why that is uh, the case. Um, and this idea of, of totalities and, and, and so on comes back uh, again and again, uh, sometimes, like I say, uh, e explicitly. Uh, for instance, uh, let me find a... This is one of those moments where I probably won't be able to find it. Where Marx comes back. Yeah, if you go, if you've got a text, you can go to page 278. And there you'll see Marx uh, talking about uh, uh, while in the completed bourgeois system, every economic relation presupposes every other in its bourgeois economic form. And everything posited is thus also a presupposition. This is the case with every organic system. This organic system itself, as a totality, has its presuppositions. There are presuppositions even with respect to the totality. And its development to its totality consists precisely in subordinating all elements of society to itself or in creating out of it the organs which it still lacks. This is historically how it becomes a totality. The process of becoming this totality forms a moment of its process, of its development. So this is the kind of framework which is coming, coming, coming back. The, the analogy here is with an organic system. And this is going to crop up in, in these passages, too. So, okay, keep that in mind. But then start 
to follow Marx when he says, look, I'm now going to look at the question of production, and I'm going to look at it through the lens of how classical political economy has set it up. And classical political economy uh, tended to set up uh, these categories. So he says, let's look at the categories that classical political economy looked at. They looked at production and they looked at distribution. Essentially, they're treated as separate. The classical political economists looked at production and consumption. And then asked the question, what is more important here? And on page 89, he says this. He says, well, when we look at the various categories which the economists line up, then what we see is something like this. That, this is on page 89, production creates the objects which correspond to the given needs. Distribution divides them up according to social laws. Exchange further parcels out the already divided shares in accord with individual needs. And finally, in consumption, the product steps outside this social movement and becomes a direct object and servant of individual need and satisfies it in being consumed. Consumption takes goods out of this totality. They disappear. We eat it and it disappears. So consumption is the moment where something that's been created but then disappears. In this system, says Marx, production appears as the point of departure, consumption as the conclusion, distribution and exchange as the middle, which is, however, itself twofold, since distribution is determined by society and exchange by individuals. Distribution determines the relation in which products fall to individuals. Exchange determines the production in which the individual demands a portion allotted to him by distribution. Thus, production, distribution, exchange, and consumption form a regular syllogism. Production is the generality, distribution and exchange the particularity, and consumption the singularity in which the whole is joined together. This is admittedly a coherence, but a shallow one. I mean, classical political economy saw there was relationships, but it's a shallow one. It's not the way he's laying it out in this kind of flow diagram. The opponents of the political economists, he says, uh, approach the political economist view and tend to object to the way in which production is privileged in this system. Uh, this accusation as to what is top dog in the system, as it were, and what is more important than the other in the, in the system, is based precisely on the economic notion that the spheres of distribution and of production are independent, autonomous neighbors, or that these moments were not grasped in their unity. 
So Marx is going to say, when you view it from the standpoint of the totality, you see that these things are flowing into each other. Production is not production without flowing into consumption. Consumption doesn't work unless you get distribution. Distribution doesn't work, you know. So it's like it's like if you ask the question, is production more important? In, in this flow of, within the totality, is production more important than distribution? And Marx's answer is he wouldn't ask that question. It's like saying, is your liver more important than your heart? It doesn't make any sense, you know. So, so it, that's why this organic analogy starts to become uh, rather important. So Marx then sets up and he looks at how classical political economy looks at consumption and production. And there are two forms of consumption, which you can see again in this diagram. One is the form of consumption, which is final consumption, where product is eaten, worn, or used, or thrown away, or whatever. Uh, the other is a line of production of means of production, which flow back into the system. So there is, says Marx, a category about two-thirds way down page 90, of productive consumption. Now, what's more important, final consumption or productive consumption? In particular situations, we'll find that this distinction between final consumption and productive consumption is terribly important. For instance, in the crash of 2007-2008, Chinese uh, export industries lost their market in the United States. Final consumption collapsed. So all of the industries producing final consumption were going bankrupt. Millions of people were being thrown out of work because final consumption was not working. So what did the Chinese do? They switched all of their energies into productive consumption. That is, they built infrastructures. They built railroads, they built highways, they built, you know, they invested in new plant and equipment, infrastructures. And there was a proposal in this country to do the same thing, but, you know, at the time the Republicans wouldn't allow that, you know, because that would create deficits and things. But the point is that there's a distinction between production, final consumption, and productive consumption. And that distinction, again, in a flow of this kind within the totality, you can see you've got some options. If final consumption is not working, okay, let's, let's do the productive consumption. Let's get into that circuit. But the way this looks uh, to classical political economy is that what it does is it actually starts to bring production and consumption together as if they are part and parcel of, 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 of each other. Uh, production, he says, is also immediately consumption. Consumption is also immediately production. That is, the relationship between production and consumption is a tautology. And the tautological qualities of the economic theory become rather powerful. For instance, one of the big tautological precepts is something called Say's Law, which says that since every purchase 
is a sale, and every sale is a purchase, there can't be an excess of purchases or sales. They're always in equilibrium. And if they're always in equilibrium, then, you know, you can't have a general crisis. And Say's law dominated economic theory from Ricardo right the way through to the 1930s and Keynes, when everybody started to say, this is nonsense to say there can't be a general crisis because we're living in one. And so Say's law got overthrown, as it were, in the 1930s. The same thing occurred, by the way, in the uh, uh, in the financial services. Since every credit is a debt and every debt is a credit, there can't be an excess of debts or credits. It's what's called the efficient market hypothesis, which says basically you don't want to regulate anything, you've got to leave everything alone because the only thing that would get you messed up, so it's because the market will clear. And in 2007, 2008, it didn't clear. So the tautology and the tautological formulation is, is, is a real problem in economic theory. And Marx is talking about that tautology uh, very directly here. And there's a certain, however, there is a certain truth to the proposition of the relationship between production and consumption. Uh, as he says, a railway on which no trains run hence which is not used, up, not consumed, is a railway only in potentiality. So what he does then is to say, look, let's look at how the, 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 the economists set things up. He says, because consumption creates the need for new product production, that is, creates the ideal internally impelling cause for production, Consumption creates the motive for production. It also creates the object which is active in production as its determinant aim. It is clear that production offers consumption its external object. It is therefore equally clear that consumption ideally posits the object of production as an internal image, as a need, as drive, and as purpose. So he's looking at production and consumption in, in the way in which classical political economy looked at it. And then saying, well, okay, what this does is to produce uh, a following situation. And he outlines these on page 93. Production is consumption, consumption is production. You can have consumptive production, or you can have productive consumption. The political economists call both productive consumption, but then make a further distinction. The first figures as reproduction, the second as productive consumption. All investigations into this uh, recognize that relationship between production and consumption. The second point, however, is that one appears as a means for the other, is mediated by the other. Without production, no consumption. Without consumption, no production. This identity figures in economics in many different forms. And then the third point is, not only is production immediately consumption, and consumption immediately production, not only is production a means for consumption, and consumption the aim of production, 
but also each of them, apart from being immediate the other, and apart from mediating the other, in addition to this, creates the other in completing itself, and creates itself as the other. Very important idea, the other is the completion of itself. So what Marx is doing here is kind of saying, okay, classical political economy analyzes it this way. I'm now beginning to develop some of my own ways of looking at things. And I understand this immediate identity, this mediated position, and then this creation of consumption, uh, the completion of consumption and the act of production and the like. And this, of course, is frequently cited in economics in terms of relation of demand and supply and the equilibrium between demand and supply. And he then actually quotes Say on page 94. And then he says, the important thing to emphasize here is only that whether production and consumption are viewed as the activity of one or many individuals, they appear in any case as moments of one process. Production and consumption are different moments of one process. We don't know exactly what that process is, but that's part of what Marx wants to uncover. And this then leads him to look at distribution and production. And he does it in exactly the same way. He analyzes the way in which distribution is a form of production, and production affects distribution. Uh, and why it is that the, the structure of distribution is completely determined by the structure of production. Distribution is itself a product of production, but it is altogether an illusion to posit uh, land in production, ground rent in distribution, and that therefore production and distribution are in a similar relationship to production and consumption. Now, one of the things that, that, that happened in classical political economy was there was a tendency to understand production as being prior and privileged. And that prior privilege really meant that it was natural. And again, we come back to the naturalness versus the social construction. It is natural. And because it is natural, human beings cannot radically transform production. Distribution is not natural, it's social. So we actually get then a concept of socialism, which is that of John Stuart Mill and many of the Ricardians, and which we have to this day which is socialism is about distribution. It's not about reorganizing production. You can't touch production because it's natural, it's given, but you can do something with distribution. and he says on 97, it, it is said that since production must begin with a certain distribution of the instruments of production, it follows that distribution, at least in this sense, precedes 
and forms a presupposition of production. Then the reply must be that production does indeed have its determinants and preconditions, which form its moments. Come back. Concept of moment comes in, right? The question raised above raised above, all reduce themselves in the last instance to the role played by general historical relations in production and their relation to the movement of history generally. So Marx is going to challenge the idea that production is natural. Yes, there are natural moments in it, but it is a social organization. Social, and it is socially important. Of course, one of the things that Marx is going to talk about is very much this push for understanding the revolution in the realm of production, uh, which is going to be foundational for how we can think about the construction of socialism or, or communism. So Marx goes on in this kind of way, and I'm not going to go through all of the ways in which the other creates the other, and this flows into that, and that flows into this, but I think you're getting the point. But he comes to the conclusion, which is on page 99, where he says, the conclusion we reach is not that production, distribution, exchange, and consumption are identical, but that they all form the members of a totality, distinctions within a unity. Production predominates not only over itself in the antithetical definition of production, but over the other moments as well. The process always returns to production to begin anew. If you look at the diagram, yeah, you always come back into production. That exchange and consumption cannot be predominant is self-evident. Likewise, distribution is distribution of products. While as distribution of the agents of production, it is itself a moment of production. So the distribution of the means of production is, of course, foundational for how production is organized. So to say that production creates distribution is also to say that the distribution of the means of production is actually foundational for the organization of production. And so the class relations which exist in production. A definite production thus determines a definite consumption, distribution and exchange as well as definite relations between these different moments. Notice this idea of the moments coming back in again. So the moments within the totality. Admittedly, however, in its one-sided form, production is itself determined by the other moments. For example, if the market, i.e. the sphere of exchange, expands, then production grows in quantity, and the divisions between its different branches become deeper. A change in distribution changes production, e.g. concentration of capital, different distribution of population between town and country, etc. Finally, the needs of consumption determine production. Mutual interaction takes place between the different moments. This is the case with every organic whole. We use the word totality. This is the case with every organic totality. Mutual interaction takes place between the different moments. So when you construct a theory of the totality, of the sort that's portrayed in this diagram, 
What you're going to do is to construct a situation in which there's going to be mutual interaction going on right throughout this whole system. All of the moments are in interaction with each other. Yes, it is true that production dominates over others from a certain perspective. From another perspective, you see that distribution dominates over production. I like this system in part because it also tells you something else where and why this system might get in trouble. Why might it run into crises? And you can see that crises can arise at any one of the moments. If something goes wrong at the moment of realization, then all of the other moments are dead in the water. They can't be completed. The other cannot com be completed. If there's a strike and all production comes to an end, then you know, there is an effect right throughout the whole system. So this is a, this, these, these passages here is to try to read what classical political economy was doing through the lens of the totality and the moments. And to see that classical political economy was not, uh, they, they weren't idiots. They, they, were, they were struggling to understand what was going on. But they were doing it from a perspective which in, in effect inhibited the full explication of what was going on because they had, did not have the concept of the totality and they did not have this concept of moments within the totality. So when you approach the economy with this totality and moments, then you start to see things in a very different light. So that's the second part of this chapter. The third part is the method of political economy. Now it's very rare for Marx to write about the method of political economy. So you should pay close attention to what he does write here. Because, you know, you, you, can, you can figure out what the method of political economy is from what he does, but it's very rare that he ever tries to explain to you, you know, in words what it is that he does. But here he tries to talk a little bit. But again, it's from an angle, and the angle is from a critique of classical political economy. So when he talks about the method of political economy, it's not his own method of political economy, so much as it is really talking about the method of political economy which is exhibited in the works of the political economists. And he says, well, when you turn to the works of the political economists, what do you see? Uh, uh, what you see that you see the starting point of classical political economy is what is called the real precondition to begin in economics is you start with the population which is the foundation and the subject of an entire social act of production. So this is what the classical political economists start with. 
Now, he doesn't explain here uh, why they start with this. And because he's so critical of it that you would think it would be obvious why they shouldn't start with this. Because he then goes on to say, the population, uh, however, on closer examination, this proves false, that this can be the foundation. The population is an abstraction. If I leave out, for example, the classes of which it's composed, these these classes, in turn, are an empty phrase if I am not familiar with the elements on which they rest, e.g. wage, labor, capital, etc. These latter, in turn, presuppose exchange, division of labor, prices, etc. For example, capital is nothing without wage, labor, without value, money, price. Thus, if I were to begin with the population, this would be a chaotic conception. That is, you're not going to be able to get anywhere if you start with in fact, if you begin with the population, the only thing you can do is to move analytically to break it down into very smaller and smaller simple concepts. And what you imagine you're doing is that you're taking the concrete, which is a population, but Marx says it's not concrete, it's an abstraction, but you think you're taking the concrete and then you're beginning to actually arrive at abstractions by gradually probing deeper and deeper into the nature of the population. And from this, we end up, move analytically towards ever more simple concepts from the imagined concrete, which is the population, towards ever thinner abstractions, until I had arrived at the simplest determinations. That is, you got down to say, I don't know, individuals or, or households or whatever. And then he says, from there, the journey would have to be retraced until I had finally arrived at the population again, but this time not as the chaotic conception of a whole, but as a rich totality of many determinations and relations. That is, you can understand the population, but if you assume you understand it and then sort of use it, you're going to get things very wrong because what you need is a way of reconstructing what is the population is on the basis of the abstractions and the many determinations. So that the population then is going to be considered as a rich totality of many determinations and relations. The former, that is, taking the, the population and then dissecting it into smaller and smaller things, is the path historically followed by economics at the time of its origins. The economists of the 17th century always begin with the living whole, with population, nation, state, several states. But they always conclude by discovering through analysis a small number of determinate abstract general relations, such as division of labor, money, value, etc. As soon as these individual moments had been more or less firmly established and had abstracted, there began the economic systems which ascended from the simple relations, such as labor, division of labor, need, exchange value, to the level of the state, exchange between nations and the world market. The latter is obviously the scientifically correct method. The concrete is concrete, 
because it is the concentration of many determinations, hence unity of the diverse. It appears in the process of thinking, therefore, as a process of concentration, as a result, not as a point of departure, even though it is the point of departure in reality and hence also the point of departure for observation and conception. Along the first path, the full conception was evaporated to yield an abstract determination. Along the second, the abstract determinations lead towards the reproduction of the concrete by way of thought. Now, if you take, for example, the diagram that, that, that I've been working with, what the diagram does is to try to illustrate how we, we can actually attempt to reproduce the concrete activities which occurring within a capitalist economy by starting with the abstract determinations and moving towards the concrete. The method of rising from the abstract to the concrete, says Marx, is only the way in which thought appropriates the concrete, reproduces it as a concrete in the mind. But this is by no means the process by which the concrete itself comes into being. How was this system, which we're deciding here, created? It was created historically, bit by bit. Now, the concrete totality, as he said, is a totality of thoughts, concrete in thought, in fact a product of thinking and comprehending, but not in any way a product of the concept which thinks and generates itself outside or, or above observation and conception, a product rather of the working up of observation and conception into concepts. The totality, as it appears in the head, as a totality of thoughts, is a product of a thinking head which appropriates the world in the only way it can, a way different from the artistic, religious, practical and mental appropriation of this world. The real subject retains its autonomous existence outside the head just as before, namely as long as the head's conduct is merely speculative, merely theoretical. So Marx is arguing that in the history of capitalism, the, the sort of totality he's representing in, this, in the three volumes of Capital, in the, in his, out of his head, a product of his thinking, is connected and arises out of a historical process which has created something like this. For, for example, this system could not work unless there was a free exchange. Therefore, this system will only work in a situation where you have private property rights, exchange relations, and all the rest of it. Those have been historically constructed and historically imposed. And you build a society over time. And as he said in that earlier uh, you know, 
excerpt I suggested, the totality comes into being. So the totality doesn't pre-exist. And the totality is not the, a, a simple product of thought. But what the thinking head tries to do is to reconstruct what the reality is out there. And, to, and this is what political econo Marx's political economy is about, is trying to reconstruct uh, the totality that is being constructed through daily life and daily practices in the market and you know, commodity exchange and, and production activity and all the rest of it. To, you're trying to reconstruct that uh, in, in, in the head. So I guess the way we should be really thinking about this is to, is to recognize that there, there's this dialogue, I hesitate to use the word dialectic, but dialogue, if you like, between how something is being represented as a totality and the processes, the social processes that are producing totalities and sustaining totalities or dissolving totalities. So it's not as if the totality is something which is, you know, solid. It's perpetually in the process of modification, transformation. And as it is being transformed, so the conceptual apparatus that we use to represent it also has to transform. Otherwise, what we do is we apply our concept of a totality to a situation where the totality is not working that way anymore. It's working in some alternative form. Which is the kinds of issues which arise when people start to say, well, you know, financialization changes everything. Totality doesn't look like this anymore. In fact, there's a little thing in there which is called the circulation of interest-bearing capital. Interest-bearing capital does not circulate in the same way as what Marx calls normal capital or industrial capital. It actually circulates in a different way. Interest-bearing capital doesn't have to go through production in order to claim it's part of the surplus. I mean, banks can lend the landowners to buy land. Banks can lend to merchant capitalists. Banks can lend to workers so that they have credit cards and they can get mortgages to buy a house or something. So banks don't have to go through production in order to earn interest. The way Marx has set this up is you have to go back through production. What happens when a large segment of the economy is not going back through production? So the totality then is to begin with this is not a this is not a complete representation of the, the, the totality even in Marx's time it's a simplified version it's helpful in some regards in other words in other res respects it doesn't deal with everything that needs to be dealt with by any means but the task of, of, of economics and economic theory is to try to capture the totality and capture 
the nature of the relations between these different moments. And it makes sense to kind of say, well, okay, there's a moment of production, there's a moment of realization, uh, there's a moment of consumption, there's a moment of distribution, there's a moment of reinvestment, and these moments are very important. So this is the solution. This is, if you like, But then uh, there's a, a kind of a very interesting argument, which is about the order in which the categories should be presented. And on 106 at the bottom, it says, in the succession of the economic categories, as in any other historical social science, it must not be forgotten that their subject, here modern bourgeois society, is always what is given, in the head as well as in reality, and that these categories therefore express the forms of being, the characteristics of existence, and often only individual sides of this specific society, this subject and that, therefore this society by no means begins only at the point where one can speak of it as such. This holds for science as well. It will shortly, he says, be decisive for the order and sequence of the categories. For example, nothing seems more natural than to begin with ground rent, with landed property, since this is bound up with the earth. Historically, the relation to the earth as a distributional form regulating production and who has access to the earth and how they claim product from it. That the earth is the source of all production and all being. So we should start with the first form of production of all more or less settled societies, agriculture. But nothing, he says, would be more erroneous. In all forms of society, there is one specific kind of production which predominates over the rest, whose relations thus assign rank and influence to the others. And then he talks about you know, some of the ways in which uh, historically many of these categories have been set up. What Marx does here is to say the historical order in which these categories came into, became significant has nothing to do with the situation in a, a fully developed bourgeois society of where these categories would lie. And this, this creates a very interesting kind of question because Money, for example, precedes capitalism. Credit and debt precede capitalism. Landed property and extractions from landed property precede capitalism. But what happens in, a, in, in the bourgeois form of capitalist society is that all of those categories get given a different meaning because they become absorbed within 
the totality. And as the totality forms, so it reconfigures. Of course, what we'll get, as Marx says in here, we will get these anti-diluvian histories, he calls them, uh, of, uh, of these different categories that they existed, they've long pre-existed. And they can carry over and be residuals. So there'll be feudal residuals, the things that look like how it was in feudal times. But those feudal residuals are not the same as how, for instance, rent and interest exist within a bourgeois society. In other words, the sorts of credit and debit, def, uh, and debt that you might find in ancient Sumer or in Roman Empire or anything like that is completely different from the way in which debt and interest and so on work in a bourgeois capitalist society. Similarly, it will be true of the nature of rent. That the landed property and the extraction of land rents in feudal society was a very common practice, but the role of land rent under capitalism becomes radically different, gets transformed. So you don't start the analysis of capitalist society with the category of land rent. You would start the analysis of feudal society with the category of land rent, but not See what I'm saying? So this, so, so Marx is kind of gonna, gonna say, as the totality forms, so it actually gives an entirely different mean, meaning to the moments of which the category is constructed. And money enters into a capitalist society and takes on very distinctive forms. And we'll see that next week. The, uh, Rent takes on very distinctive forms under capital, interest and finance. And one of the problems I have with something like David Graeber's book on 5,000 years of rent is he treats, treats uh, of, of debt, is that he treats debt in ancient Sumer as, analog, as, as no different in principle from debt today. Whereas debt is completely different in Marx's reading and kind of says, we've got to look at this uh, for instance, there was no market in debt. But now we've got debt markets where zoo. So, and, and, and debt creation right now has a completely different uh, configuration uh, and, and different function uh, than debt creation had in ancient uh, Sumer. Um, so Marx says, look, uh, ground rent cannot be understood without capital. But capital can certainly be understood without grand rent. Capital, he says, is the all-dominating economic power of bourgeois society. It must form the starting point, as well as the finishing point, and must be dealt with before landed property. After both have been examined in particular, their interrelation must be examined. That is, the, again, the method of moments is, is, is always there. It would therefore be unfeasible and wrong to let the economic categories follow one another in the same sequence as that in which they were historically decisive. Their sequence is determined rather by their relation to one another in modern bourgeois society. 
which is precisely the opposite of that which seems to be their natural order or which corresponds to historical development. The point is not the historic position of the economic relations in the succession of different forms of society. Even less is it their sequence in the idea. He then gives a bit of an explanation as to why the economists approached the world in the way they did, starting with population and, and why they haven't got their categories straight either. And he, he puts it this way. The concept of national wealth creeps into the work of the economists in, uh, of the 17th century, continuing partly with those of the 18th, in the form of the notion that wealth is created only to enrich the state, and that its power is proportionate to this wealth. This was still unconsciously hypocritical, this was the still unconsciously hypocritical form in which wealth and the production of wealth proclaimed themselves as the purpose of modern states, and regarded these states henceforth only as means for the production of wealth. Okay, you had a situation in the 17th and 18th centuries. The state has become a sovereign state under the Treaty of Westphalia earlier. So you have sovereign states. Sovereign states are interested in accumulating wealth because accumulation of wealth is accumulation of power. And if they're in contest with other states, they want to accumulate more wealth, more power. So early economics was, was really built upon the idea of giving advice to, to statesmen as to how to make your state wealthier and more powerful. That's why they started with population, because they started with the population of the state. And they were going to end up with the population because they were going to, you know, tell the royalty or the chancellors or whoever it was, here's what you've got to do if you want to become wealthier. So the early schools of economic theory, physiocrats, kind of said wealth comes from the land, from agriculture. Because of the relation to nature, it's foundational, it's therefore natural, and all wealth comes from that relation to nature given in agriculture. So the physiocrats said that's where it comes from. The mercantilists said no, it comes from trade. And Marx is saying, well, no, it, it comes from production, and in particular the organization of, of capitalist production. And Marx wasn't the only one saying that. I mean, this is what Adam Smith uh, was saying. And now, in giving advice to, to statesmen, of course, one of the things that the economists were, were, were quickly doing was to say, look, if, 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 you want to be, if you want to become wealthy, then the best way you can become wealthy is to have the state adopt a position of laissez-faire. Get out of the way. Get out of the way of regulation. Stop regulating things. And then individual initiative and entrepreneurial, and if you liberate the animal spirits of the entrepreneurs and you liberate individuals, and this then comes back also to individualism. That is, the state was not opposed to individualism. 
The state, through the political economists, was saying, mobilize individual creativity and innovation and entrepreneurialism and all the rest of it, and then you will get the creation of immense wealth, and the state will be able to tax that wealth, and the state will become extremely wealthy. And that, well, we still have that form of argument around, right? I mean, this is what the whole neoliberal thing was about, was basically saying, you know, we've regulated too much, we've got to deregulate everything, and then we'll become very rich, and, and, and then. Uh, but it's interesting that the, the economists themselves frequently did not necessarily uh, agree uh, with the production of a great deal of social inequality. I mean, Adam Smith basically would say, to the leaders of the state apparatus would say, look, once you become wealthy, what you do with your wealth is another question. And if there is a great deal of inequality or poverty or something like that, you may appropriate some of the wealth and redistribute it, which is why you then get the distributive socialists who come after Ricardo, so you get the Ricardian distributive socialists. John Stuart Mill was one of the great advocates of this. But again, it's about distribution, not about production. And you can see why it was that the 18th century economists were very much concerned with the question of uh, free production, because this was what was going to bring wealth, privilege, and power in rivalry with other, other European states. So that this, this was where things were at. Um, but then we then come to a, another feature of uh, uh, the Grundrisse, which is page 108. And we're going to find this framework very frequently cropping up, which is Marx every now and again says, well, there's this, but that doesn't belong here. And what is clear is that one of the questions that's animating Marx and his thinking is what kind of structure do I have to create to write down a complete understanding of how bourgeois society works? And there are several uh, proposals in the Grundrisse uh, as to what the form of uh, his future work should be. Uh, so he sets it up this way. He says, the order, or, the order obviously has to be, one, the general abstract determinants which obtain in more or less all forms of society, but in the above explained sense, that is how he's been talking about it. The categories, two, the categories which make up the inner structure of bourgeois society and on which the fundamental classes rest. Capital, wage labor, landed property. Their interrelation, town and country. The three great social classes, exchange between them. Circulation, credit system, private concentration of bourgeois society in the form of the state, viewed in relation to itself. The unproductive classes, taxes, state debt, 
public credit, the population, the colonies, emigration. Fourth category, the international relation of production, international division of labor, international exchange, export and import, rate of exchange. Five, the world market and crises. So Marx is actually saying there's got to be five books. Or if you say some of these other things, it's maybe it's 20 books. But that's, that's he's kind of saying, all right, this, this is what I'm, I'm going to have to work on. Uh, some of the elements he's already covering and will be covered in the Grundrisse. There's a great deal about the general abstract determinants. There's a great deal about the categories which make up the inner structure of bourgeois society and on which the fundamental classes rest. Though landed property doesn't really come in. So, there, there are numerous um, plans for capital of the book. And this is the first one. Um, there's an interesting book by this man called Rosdolsky called The Making of Marx's Capital. And Rosdolsky came across uh, a, a very, very uh, scarce German version of the Grundrisse of all places in the New York Public Library. And he was a, uh, I think, a, a refugee, a Jewish refugee. And he wasn't a scholar or anything, but he came across it and he thought, oh my God, how come people haven't taken this work seriously? So from about 1947 to 1955, he worked on his own, you know, amateurishly, if you like, but, but, but very, very carefully to try to reconstruct the different plans that existed for Marx's capital as laid out in the, the Grundrisse. And uh, he published this book in German and then it came out in English, I guess, 1970 or something like 70, maybe a little later than 1970. But, 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 so, so Rosgutowski's uh, uh, reconstruction of the Grundrisse is sort of interesting to read because he skips over a lot of things and just kind of says, well, okay, now we have uh, the, the, the third uh, proposal and the fourth proposal and the fifth proposal. So if you want to have a good sense of it. On terms of other readings of the Grundrisse, uh, the other reading, which I think is uh, interesting, is the one by Tony Negri. Uh, it's, it's called Marx Beyond Marx. Uh, Negri, of course, is, is very much uh, in the operaismo uh, kind of uh, way of way of thinking. Uh, he's really very very good on relations uh, on on questions of labor. Uh, he has seven lectures, I think, on the Grundrisse, uh, and and uh, he's, of course he's also deeply involved in the you know, some of the philosophical roots. So. If you're interested in Hegel and Spinoza and, and Marx, uh, and uh, uh, then 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 the, the Negri uh, text is, uh, is 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 very is very good on that. Uh, 
Um, so uh, that is the end of the, if the, the method part. Uh, and the method, as I suggest, ends up with a plan uh, for the future uh, inquiries which Marx is going to conduct. Now, and now part four, I don't know if any of you have looked at it, it's very, it's just a bunch of notes. Um, but the notes can sometimes be, uh, he starts off with saying, well, I've got to say something about war. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and the role of the army and the relation of productive force and relations of exchange uh, in, in the military. Uh, he, he never really gets around to, to any of that. Um, there's some other matters, accusations uh, against the materialism of his conceptions uh, and uh, the difference between historical materialism, which is a, a social construct, and naturalistic materialism. Uh, he needs to deal with that. Dialectic of the concepts of productive force and relations of production. This is a, a famous aspect of Marx thinking about productive forces and relations of production and what the relationship is. And he then, sixth character is the uneven development of material production relative to other forms of development. In particular, he's interested in artistic development. Uh, and uh, so there follow some remarks about what goes on in the arts. Uh, and he kind of formulates the idea that, uh, that certain forms of art, such as the epic, uh, can no longer be produced in their world epoch-making classical stature uh, because the society has changed. Uh, and he tries to suggest that uh, forms of artistic uh, production are not Im immune from the, uh, the, the the relations of production which are and and productive forces which are around so he says uh, you know, what would Greek mythology and Greek imagination look like uh, when it was based on the self-acting mule, spindles and railways and locomotives and electrical telegraphs. What chance has Vulcan against Roberts and Co? Jupiter against the lightning rod and Hermes against the Credit Mobilier. All mythology overcomes and dominates and shapes the forces of nature in the imagination by the imagination. It therefore vanishes with the advent of real mastery over them. Um, so he then poses always the question, and this is, um, often amuses people, that the Greek arts and epic are bound up with certain forms of social development. The difficulty is that they still afford us artistic pleasure. And he has to explain that. Uh, and this he does by saying a man cannot become a child again, or he becomes childish, but does he not find joy in the child's naivete? And must he himself not strive to re reproduce its truth at a higher stage? Does not the true character of each epoch come alive in the nature of its children? Why should not the historic childhood of humanity, its most beautiful unfolding, as a stage never to return, exercise an eternal charm? 
Well, you can take that if you like and run with it. It's kind of fun. Um, and uh, this is this is sorts of things that crop up in the Grundlerisse quite frequently. Uh, little sort of snippets of this kind, remarks of this kind, some of which are extremely profound, and, and some of which uh, are, are kind of way out, wacko, but uh, enjoyable, uh, which is kind of kind of fun. So let me stop here and see if you have any questions about about either any of the the three major parts which have been here, the uh, the individual individualism. Uh, kind of part, the production, consumption, consumption, production, and, and all the relations between the moments. Do you have any kind of comments, questions about them? Or the method of political economy? So, am I okay with this idea of, of totality and moments? I mean, Yeah. yeah. Uh, it it seems that uh, uh, totality brings to mind a kind of spatial imagery, and uh, moment is obviously, uh, you know, a little about time. But at the same time, from the uh, text, it seems that it's it's the other way around. That totality is the historical stuff. Uh, and moment is more about space, or you know something. I mean, this is not even a question, but a thought. Yeah, he actually. Uh, if I go back to that passage on two seventy-eight, where he says, "In the completed bourgeois system, every economic relation presupposes every other in its bourgeois economic form." And everything posited is thus also a presupposition. This is the case with every organic system. This organic system itself, as a totality, has its presuppositions, and its development to its totality consists precisely in subordinating all elements of society in it to itself, or in creating out of it the organs which it still lacks. This is historically how it becomes a totality. The process of becoming this totality forms a moment of its process, of its development. And that's what I read to you before, but then he continues in the following way. On the other hand, if within one society, and this comes back, I think, to this question of uh, the political economist's relation to the state, it says, on the other hand, if within one society, the modern relations of production, i.e. capital, are developed to its totality, and this society then seizes hold of a new territory, as e.g. the colonies, then it finds, or rather its representative, the capitalist finds, that his capital ceases to be capital without wage labor, and that one of the presuppositions of the latter is not only landed property in general, but modern landed property, landed property which, as capitalized rent, is expensive and which, as such, excludes the direct use of the soil by individuals. Hence Wakefield's theory of colonies. And you remember, Wakefield's theory of colonies is what the last chapter of Volume, volume 1 of Capital uh, is about, which is about the geographical spread 
of the social relations of production from one territory to another. Uh, and in Wakefield's case, the territorial spread uh, was largely mandated by political power in the imperial center, uh, which imposed upon uh, territories like Australia and so on, uh, certain kind of structures of, of land holding, and this is what Marx is thinking about. So the totality uh, plainly can have a geographical referent. Uh, and uh, it's a bit surprising when you read, read it here that, that actually this geographical referent suddenly comes in and says, well, the totality actually, this system works within a certain arena. If you ask this, the, the, the totality portrayed in these re relations, where would you have found something like this totality in operation. Uh, and the answer in Marx's time would be, well, uh, you would find it uh, in Western Europe, uh, Britain, obviously, and in the United States. And Marx, and we didn't get to this, but Marx several times in these passages starts to say, the totality looks very different in the United States than it looks in Britain. Why? Uh, because uh, there are feudal residuals in Britain. And there are no feudal residuals in the United States. Therefore, the totality, as it has developed in the United States, has a different character from the totality as it has developed in Britain. So that the notion of the totality doesn't you know, you, you can get a notion of it that somehow or other it's, it, it, it's fixed, but its borders and boundaries are, are, not, are not secure. It's, it can be geographically expanding. Uh, it can be colonizing spaces. Uh, and it's, it, I, I guess if, if Marx had had the analogy of uh, an ecosystem, an e kind of the concept of an ecosystem came in, in the late 19th century. Uh, Marx never appropriated it, but I think what he would have said is the organic process I'm looking at is more like an ecosystem, which can be expanding and growing and transforming and changing internally. So the totality is not something that is fixed, and it's not something that's pre-designed. It is something that's constituting the process of evolution, and when you start to think in terms of it uh, territorially, you would say that there are certain kind of uh, totalities which exist. For, for instance, uh, the formation of the European Union. In what sense did that actually start to construct a totality? And what were the relations between the different moments which led to its construction? How, for example, was production and distribution and, 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 and so on organized? through the European Union. And to what degree did it then have to start to put borders around itself and say, uh-uh, uh, we're, not, we're not stretching, you know, are we gonna stretch into Turkey? Are we gonna, gonna will, we, will, will we admit Algeria or Tunisia or something like that? I mean, there's all this sort of kind of, kind of arena and, and, and how far does the European Union go? 
uh, up against up against Russia. You know what what what's that about? So the totality is not um, is not is not something that can't be given a, a territorial designation. And Marx does just very briefly here mention uh, that uh, territoriality, which, by the way, uh, comes to some degree from Hegel, but that's that's another. Uh, another, another, another question. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so no, I wanted to expand a bit on this um, question because uh, immediately, I mean, as, as soon as you start reading this issue of the totality, you know that he's totally in, in sync with what Hegel also had brought in this concept of the totality. But um, it's, it seems that, um, I mean, for Hegel, he was searching for the truth in the totality. Whereas with Marx, it seems that he's, uh, at least here, as I was reading, is he's searching for not a fixed truth or any other form, but it's also like the, the continuation of a process, right? Yeah. And so therefore the totality is not to be seen as something, as you perfectly said, as flowing frozen, but something that it's perpetually you know, changing. And now that you brought this analogy of, uh, of the European Union, um, it's also very interesting to, to see how this concept could apply in different moments or different conditions of the territory in today's time. So, for example, as one flies over uh, the Middle East, you know how the whole uh, sort of territorial aspect of just Iran uh, changes the whole airspace around it, and it has its own particularities on some production system. Right. Whereas right. the European Union might have other particularities right. at the right. same moment in time, right? right. On how right. it conditions territory, the same as New York. And so, it's also very interesting to see or to begin to read like. These sort of like many totalities, right, that coexist, um, but nevertheless they form part of a larger totality, which might be what we call capital. And that's what is a little bit complicated to begin to grasp into this. So sometimes one wishes that he wrote more on totality. No. Yeah, and he doesn't. He doesn't deal uh, very well with uh, uh, this is this issue um, where, where where he talks. And, and here, for example, just very, very briefly, um, about about the historical development, and the, 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 the you know, he gets he does get into a certain point, kind of saying, well, this notion of totality sounds like Hegel, but in fact, you know, Hegel produced it out of his head, whereas what we are trying to do is we're trying to produce it. Uh, out of a out of a study of the concrete forms uh, which exist, and okay, we, we're we're certainly setting it up theoretically and and giving it giving it conceptually uh, a, a a particular a particular form. So yes, it's it, it's but the kind of notion of totality is 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 not uh, a, a something that's fixed. It's it's constantly evolving. And what happens when different, you know, Marx doesn't deal with what happens when different totalities collide, as it were, and, 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 and intermesh. And that, that phrase where he wants to talk about uneven geographical, uneven development is, is, also, is also there and says, well, but these are things that seems to me that we can elaborate on as we want. It's, it's latent there in the text, but Marx doesn't himself uh, get to it.
Any other kind of comments? Just staying with the topic of totality, there's a quote about how on 105, but there is a devil of difference between barbarians who are fit by nature to be used for anything and civilized people who apply themselves to everything. Yes. Thinking of that through the understanding of bourgeois society being the kind of highest development of the totality, the most developed totality in the sense of it being totalizing, right. Right. would Marx say that totality or at least the way that it's understood in bourgeois society doesn't exist historically prior that systems of totality are or, or this totalizing economic form the referring to the diagram is something that is unique to bourgeois society well i think he's he's saying that the form of the totality is unique yeah. to bourgeois society and it's you know constantly evolving uh, internally um, but he's not saying that there's never been a totality uh, before. Uh, and, and I think that uh, there are uh, some features uh, where, where there's an interesting kind of phrase here on 105 that you mentioned where he says, human anatomy contains the key to the anatomy of the ape. The intimations of higher development among the subordinate animal species can be understood only after higher development is already known. There is, there is uh, in Marx, uh, uh, frequently a kind of a, a, a bit of a teleological thing that there's an evolutionary process which is moving towards something which is uh, superior and higher. Uh, and uh, then the question arises of, of how on, on where that possibility comes from. And I think the um, uh, one, of, one of the issues which uh, I think it's important to do is to recognize that, uh, where does he say this, um, that the, I mean, at some point he will also mention race. Uh, say well, okay. The, uh, the the possibilities for transformation and the creation of the totality depend on a whole set of the possible possibilities. One of which is race, and another of which is uh, uh, fertility, soil, environmental conditions, uh, his history and culture, and those kinds of things. So he, he does often have uh, uh, you know, elements in his thinking which are um, somewhat, uh, you know, sometimes quite a bit, a bit troubling. I mean, for instance, the, it would be, but it would have been very unusual, I think, for anybody at this period in history not to have kind of, I mean, Kant was full of kind of this hierarchy of races and intelligence and, 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 and so on. So we'll find it, some echoes of that uh, in Marx as well. Um, trying to find out exactly where he does where he does this. Um, so it's but it's but but it is a uh, it, it's not clear when he starts to talk about this possibility of a higher form of society uh, exactly what 
that means in relationship to other forms of society, which may be. Pays what? This is the industrial people when it's making certain so that certain races, locations, climates. Yes, so. right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think you, you, you know, you, you have to. I mean, you have to read this also with a, with a, with a critical, uh, somewhat critical perspective. But at the same time, at the same time, I think the the question of um, how how to set up the alternative to classical political economy uh, and what that will be about is is it seems to me a bit foundational for what's going to be going on in the Grundrisse right throughout uh, and and. Uh, the, the, I think the most interesting stuff and the most interesting aspects uh, of this are going to be the, 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 the way in which the, the different categories like money and, and labor and, and so on start to get articulated uh, so that we can understand what it is that, that lies at the basis uh, of uh, the totality which is in formation. But never think of the totality as something that is permanent or complete. And, and always think of it, as he's trying to do here, as something which is uh, both real and concrete uh, at the same time as it's abstract. So he's got this notion of a concrete abstraction that, that, it's, that it's happening. Uh, and to the degree that it's happening, uh, the conceptual apparatus through which it is being presented also has to be transformed. Any other? Any other kind of comments? Okay, well, let me let me talk just a little bit about. I want you to to, to take a real crack at the chapter on money, and I've given an awful lot of reading uh, up to about. You know, well, you, you've got the outlines, right? Uh, so uh, there's a lot. It begins with all this stuff about paper discounted by the banks and so on. And he's, he's really going after Darimon, who's a Proudhon. So it's not uh, a very exciting stuff, at least I don't think it is. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But, but uh, there are some important insights here. And if you want uh, a better understanding of uh, money, I think you would go to uh, the other text, which is a contribution to the critique of, of political economy, or the chapter three of uh, volume one of Capital. Uh, this stuff, but Marx is still searching for the question of how to design capital as a book. And one of the questions which uh, is posed is should he start with the category of money? I mean, it would be an obvious thing to start with. And in fact, in the contribution to the critique of political economy, he does start. He really does start with money. Um, but I think one of the things you will recognize from the writing in the Grundrisse uh, that he realizes that he can't start with money, 
in part because that's where Proudhon was basically uh, <laughs> operating. And, and, and so he's got to find somewhere else to, to start. But also, I think that what, he's, what, he, what he does is, is, is to show that while money is absolutely critical for understanding the dynamics of capitalism and what capital is about and all the rest of it, uh, it's not a starting point uh, and can't be a starting point because to turn it into a, a starting point would be to actually be able to transform the whole world by transforming money, which of course was one of Proudhon's uh, hopes. So, so, uh, um, so there's a lot in here, uh, and and uh, some of it is 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 sort of in interesting. Uh, um, I mean, there's 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 uh, quite a few pages on the qualities of the uh, of, of metals, and and uh, the practices of mining gold and all kinds of things like that. Which, if you want to read them, it's kind of okay. But on the other hand, it's not uh, it's not profound. Uh, and and uh, anyway, a lot of it is fairly fairly dated and so on. But but he's but but he's really asking the question of well, if there's going to be a money commodity, which metal would be best, and and how's the metal? How did the metal uh, the, the metallic base of the of the global monetary system uh, get get established and and what was going on with American you know, silver and, and, and gold discoveries and this kind of stuff. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot in here of, of, of that sort, but, um, but I want to get through the money stuff as quickly as, uh, as we can, because I don't think that it's the, uh, the most illuminating and most important part of it. So you can skim read, you, can, you have my permission to skim read as, as much of it, but look for uh, insightful comments and commentaries uh, because there are some here which are very, very, you know, very useful uh, and, 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 and helpful. So, okay, so maybe we should just leave it here and we will uh, continue uh, next week doing the chapter on money.